You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Wise, Life as Gift, Not Gain. In this series from Ecclesiastes, we'll learn to see life as fundamentally a gift to receive and enjoy, not a hill to climb or a gain to achieve. This path of wisdom teaches us to live in the uncertainty and tensions of life under the sun. And now hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. There is another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then he doesn't give them a chance to enjoy these things. They die, and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old, but if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be born dead. His birth would have been meaningless, and he would have, been, would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't even have had a name, and he would have never seen the sun or known of its existence. Yet he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. He might live a thousand years twice over, but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? All people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So are wise people really better off than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, our mission here is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus, to build them up as his church, and to send them out into the world to follow him. And I'm grateful that you've joined us on that journey with us. Have you ever done something and quickly realized it didn't do what you thought it would do? Or it didn't work out the way you thought it would? Uh, a couple couple of weeks ago, you remember when it got hot all of a sudden? It went from like pleasant 70 degrees to 95, and then the weather people do things like, well, it's 93 out, but it feels like 106. I don't understand that, but whatever. It felt like 106, and uh, I spent about four or five hours outside with my kids, and kids, at least my kids, have two, two speeds. They're awake or they're asleep, and you know when they're awake, they're going. Uh, which meant that we were outside and it felt like a 138 degrees, playing, running, jumping. And when it came time to come home, I had three human-sized tomatoes. They're just so red, so red, so hot, cooking eggs on their forehead, hot. Just feel the heat and sweat radiating off these kids. Uh, my youngest is not so smart because he's two. He's not because he's dumb, he's two. He just doesn't know much yet. And so my two-year-old, again, red as a tomato, hot and sweaty, and we let our boys have long hair. And so he's got his hair all matted over his face. And he looks at me and goes, milk, daddy, milk, uh, which meant he was asking for milk. That's two-year-old speech for that's how he says milk. And I looked at him and I was like, this is not a good idea, buddy. It's a, it feels like 106. And, you, and we drink whole milk in our house because we're Christians. And... <laughs> So he, I said, okay, I mean, if you really want it. And uh, he got two gloves in and realized this was a bad choice, right? He threw the cup on the ground and he said, wah, 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 daddy. Uh, <laughs> he learned the Ron Burgundy lesson. Y'all remember Ron Burgundy? We got a picture. Pastor Travis did slides a couple of weeks ago and it made me, it made me intimidated. So I needed to give you guys a picture I have multimedia now in my sermons. Uh, he learned that milk was a bad choice. Uh, milk is great for cookies. Amen? Mm, amen. Uh, you steam milk and you put it in coffee. That's wonderful. Milk is a great gift in a whole bunch of different ways. Milk does the body good. Remember the marketing campaign? Strong bones. A lot of good things milk is for, or a lot of things milk is good for. Thirst is not one of them. It's not what milk is for. God didn't create milk to satisfy or quench our thirst. And now my two-year-old knows that. In, in some ways, two-year-olds learn better than a lot of us do. Once was enough for him. And there's many lessons that Ecclesiastes is at great lengths to show us that, boy, are we resistant to learn. Um, from the beginning of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has implicitly been talking about this, we've called it the black hole of the soul. It's that vague feeling inside of you that something is missing, or you need something, or life would be complete if I had this. And we've talked for weeks now about all the different things that we look to try to fill that pleasure, accomplishments, status, possessions. And throughout human history, we've had one preferred tool to achieve whatever that thing is that we're looking for, be it status or pleasure or possessions. Uh, one favorite tool that can 
provide us with treatments and procedures and cars and houses and vacations and jet skis and first edition books and old records and whatever it is you're into, there's been one favorite tool that we've used as long as there have been humans to try to achieve these things. Anybody know what the tool is? Money. Uh, I got to ask this because the officers, you guys remember that song, I Want to Be Rich? Anybody remember? Nobody in the first service knew that song. I want to be rich. Y'all go listen to that song. There's some there's some deep Ecclesiastes just wisdom in that song. Uh, money. It's one of our favorite tools to fill the black hole of the soul is money and the things that it can afford. Um, but is that what money is for? It's the purpose of money to acquire possessions and status and experiences so that we might feel peace and satisfaction in our soul. Uh, the whole Bible, and Ecclesiastes in particular, it's trying to show us that money works for the soul even worse than milk works for thirst. But most of us refuse to receive the lesson. Uh, we refuse to believe it. Right off the bat in the text, it showed us what money can do to the soul. Verses 8 through 9 of chapter 5 the preacher says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful, if justice is being miscarried throughout the land, for every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Uh, this is really tough for us. We've learned this over the last year and a half. Uh, in churches like ours, we love the doctrine of total depravity. You ever heard that? If I want e amens or encouraging emails after sermons, I tell people how terrible they are. Um, it's one of our favorite things to hear about, how terrible we are. But when the Bible says, you know what, and the systems that we build can be terrible too, we're like, no, 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 only people are bad. Laws and systems and courts can't be bad. Systemic sin can't be, I mean, now I'm just saying, listen, don't be surprised. You see it? It was not the me speaking. I'm going to just read the, the Bible to you again. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how courts, laws become corrupt, systems become corrupt. So listen, if individuals can become twisted and corrupted and those individuals who are twisted and corrupted get together and create an organization or a system or a laws, you know what that good chance that system filled with twisted people, might itself become twisted. It, that shouldn't be a huge hurdle for us. He's saying, don't be surprised when you see this. And what's, what's the motivation? He says, the king milks the land for profit. Oppression, injustice can become embedded in our way of life. And one of the big reasons why is this desire for profit. M money. Hungering for it can twist the soul to make us manipulative and oppressive people. We'll objectify human beings for the sake of money and for profit. We oppress for profit. Looking to money to fill the void in your soul. It can make us oppressive, manipulate, manipulative people. It distorts us and, and twists us. If you look for money, to money, for control and security and peace in your life, you'll find it's like drinking milk for your thirst. Not only does it not work, it twists your soul and can make us ugly. Look at what he says in verse 10. 
Those who love money will, what's the word? Never, never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people will come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? Mo money, mo problems. He was right. If, if you're here and you're fortunate enough to have made a lot of money, you see how suddenly you have so many friends? How often have we heard stories about the first round draft pick who's suddenly a multimillionaire and there's all these people that really love him and really want to see good things happen to his life? The original human vocation, I'm, this is just a teaser trailer, we're, we're preaching Genesis 1 and 2 for 12 weeks in the spring, or in the fall, um, because the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, not Genesis chapter 3. For my total depravity crowd out there, we've got two chapters before total depravity hits. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a human being. In our original vocation there, in Genesis 1 and 2, we were gardeners. We were made to tend a garden. And think about the images or the activities that come to mind when you think of a gardener. They cultivate. They, they tend to something fragile. They protect Human beings were not created to hoard, to possess. We were created to give and protect. And this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We live like God lives, and God is much more a gardener than he is a dragon sitting on a pile of gold. Part of what it means to be like God is we hold what we have with open hands, and we share it for the good of the world around us. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, but this is also a necessity of being a healthy and whole human. He says that the, the endless hoarding and accumulating of wealth won't give you what, it want, what you want it to. If you get more money, you'll suddenly see how many people want to be your friend. They want something from you. They, they see you as a means to an end. Not only will you not get the peace and security and control that you're after, but you get to watch all of these people objectify you and dehumanize you. And then when you die, you'll pass that money on to people who didn't work for it. Who knows if they'll be foolish or not? Who knows if they'll use all that wealth for something that would dishonor you or that, that you wouldn't want done with your money? It, so the problem, though, with, our, with this kind of mindset, it, it's not just you people and what you want to do with my money or the you people and what those people will do when I give my money to them after I die, it also does something ugly to our soul. In verse 13, he says, there's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. We already looked at this and how it can twist us and make us manipulative, oppressive people. Trusting your money to give you control and keep you safe, not only will it not work, it won't fulfill that promise, but it'll also do great damage to you. This can happen in so many ways. Wealthy people tend to have an exaggerated sense of self or of, of control, of self-reliance. I can figure this out. We can make a phone call. We can do this. And then inevitably something will happen that is out of their control, that they're unable to fix and solve, and it totally crushes them. Maybe this is, especially for those of us who are a little bit poorer in the room, this may seem surprising to you, but an increase in wealth often goes along with an increase in anxiety. Right before this, in verse 12, the preacher says, the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. 
There they are with their Egyptian cotton sheets and their stuffy, fluffy bed and their tri-zone climate control, sleeping in Monaco or whatever, and they can't sleep at night. Why? Often the increase in wealth brings with it an increase in fear of what will happen to all of my wealth. The more that we have, the more we become worried about what will happen with what we have. The more we have, the more we often end up worrying about what will happen to it. And I just wonder, especially for those of us who've been in church for a while, do we believe this? Most of us, and me too here, we see ourselves as the exception. We know it will happen to the celebrities. We know it will happen to the, the young athlete who gets all of this money, but not me, not us. Do you still believe that more of what you already have is what you need to be at peace? I'm not talking about the poor among us. Who are the poor? If you chose what shoes you wore this morning, if you had a choice in what you ate for breakfast this morning, you're probably not poor. If you can pay your light bill, if you can pay your rent, you're probably not poor. Money will not give you peace of mind or soul, and if you look to it to satisfy, it will only leave you thirsty. So verse 9 of chapter 6, he concludes, Enjoy what you have, rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. That's the image I want you all to leave with, thinking about money this morning. Chasing the wind. If you want to know what the preacher is trying to teach us here, I want you to imagine that you leave church and there's like 15 people in the parking lot afterwards running, I mean, just sprinting in circles, exhausted, dripping and sweating. You're like, what are they doing? They're like, they're chasing the wind and I think they're going to get it this time. You would look at them and be like, those people aren't right. Should we call a doctor? Should we, should we call, you know, the police? But that's us. That's the cycle of consumerism and money. If I just had more, it's like chasing the wind. And, and you need to hear at the same time, the Bible doesn't teach that money is bad or that money in and of itself is evil. Milk's not bad and money is not bad. Look at what the preacher says in verse 19 of chapter 5. He says, it's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This indeed is a gift from God. So think about milk. Milk was not made for thirst, but it was made for cookies and coffee. It was made for calcium. So as long as you use it the way it was meant to be used, it's a really good thing. This is the Christian teaching of liberty. How do you know if I can use something or do something? Use it the way that God made it to be used. Oh, I was about to do this rhetorically, but I, we have a mixed bag in this part of the country. The Bible doesn't teach alcohol is a sin. Pooch is not a sin. It's not in and of itself evil or wicked or bad. What's it made for? The Bible will say things like, well, it's good for stomach problems. It's good to gladden your heart, to make you feel warm and happy. Did God create alcohol to self-medicate pain, to disassociate from 
horrific experiences in our past, uh, to, to numb the pressures of anxiety and anxieties. Of, no, it, if we use alcohol for those things, it becomes an evil, wicked, distorted thing. So money, is, is money bad? No, money in and of itself is not bad. The scriptures teach that the love of money is the problem. It doesn't say saving is a problem. It says hoarding is the problem. Those who love money will never have enough. Well, how do I know if I love money? If you look to money to satisfy you or keep you safe, you love money. What do you sacrifice for? What do you prioritize in terms of your time and your efforts? What do you put your hope in? So if you ever look at your bank account and that number there dictates if you're doing good or you're doing bad, if you're pleasing to the Lord or displeasing to the Lord, if you're safe or you're at risk, then you love money. And let me tell you something, that is us. That is us. That is who we are as Americans. We have to own that and acknowledge that. Money is not the problem, though. The problem is our understanding of money, what it is, and how we are to use it. So let me give you a couple of categories for how you can use money. Uh, this is what we teach our children at, at my house. There are three things you can do with money. And some of you nitpickers are going to say there's a fourth thing. You could set it on fire. And don't be a maniac, okay? These are the three general things that you can do with money. You can give it, you can save it, and you can spend it. So I can give you or some organization some of it. I can set some of it back. And I can, you know, buy jet skis with it or pay my electric bill or buy groceries or wh whatever it is. Give it. Save it, spend it. That's it. I mean, that's what you can do with money. So how are Christians to give, save, spend? What do the scriptures teach us about that? Well, Jesus provides us with an underlying principle that filters how we view each one of these categories and the dollars that we allot to it. In, in Acts 20, his words are recorded for us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed, we talked about it at length when we preached through the Gospel of Matthew for a few years. It means human or fully alive or, or flourishing. You could understand Jesus is saying it's more human to give than to receive. You're more like an image bearer of God. You're closer to who God made you to be when you're giving than when you are receiving. He's reminding us that the Christian's posture is more out than it is in more open hands than clenched fists. We are gardeners, not hoarders. Hoarding wealth harms the saver, but giving it makes you more human. Sharing your wealth is active combat against a system that dehumanizes us. How does it dehumanize us? Have you noticed how much of our economy treats you like you are only your appetites? You're only the things that you desire or, or the shiny things. And if you watch TV, just go pay attention to this at home. Watch the commercials and see how rarely a commercial tells you anything about the thing they are selling you. This is especially true with car commercials. I've got a car problem. If you've listened to more than one sermon, you know I have problems with vehicles. Um, they won't tell you anything about the car. They'll have Matthew McConaughey in a tuxedo talking in a smooth Texas voice, and you're like, oh man, if I drove that, would I be as beautiful as Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> and the, the, they're of course not saying that, but they're, 
they're trying to make you feel a certain way. Have you noticed when the new iPhone comes out, this amazing device, the speech always begins with how terrible your current iPhone is. Well, it's 80% faster. The pictures are 60% clearer. And your old iPhone takes such terrible pictures. If you had this new iPhone, think of how you would feel. So much of our economy is built on making you insecure and afraid, thinking that something is wrong with you and you are missing out. But if you would just agree to three monthly installments of $79.99, all of your wildest dreams could come true. Think about the gardening posture, cultivating, protecting, giving. This is a reclamation of our humanity in Christ. This is combat against a system that dehumanizes us and treats us like we're only consumeristic animals. The goal of Ecclesiastes, whether we're talking about money or sexuality or any of the things that we've talked about, is less to tell you what's right and what's wrong, like to check the box of doing the good thing or the bad thing, as much as to help us start trying to discern what's wise and what's foolish, what will make us more human and what will make us less human. There's all kinds of things you can do with your money. The question needs to be less, what are we allowed to do versus what, are, what is wise to do? What would make us more human in the way we handle our finances? So I want to give you a couple of big, broad categories to just chew on to help you think through what does a wise stewardship of your money look like? So one of the wisest things that you can do with your money is to see your money as a tool to experience the presence of God. This has been one of the preacher's main goals throughout Ecclesiastes, his continual emphasis on, enjoy, on enjoying what you have. Enjoy this present moment. Enjoy what you have. He said this in uh, uh, verse 19 of chapter 5, because enjoying what we have and what we do is a gift from God. If we can receive what we have and what we do as a gift from God, that provides us with an experience of the presence of God, that, that he is with us, and it helps us connect to the nearness of God in our lives. So when we're about to give, save, or spend, we, we ask ourselves, will this help me experience more of the presence of God? Will this provide me with more evidence of what he's like? Will this help me remember his promise to me? And so practically, this may mean something like once a year, you have a real extravagant dinner somewhere. And do you know you're allowed to do that without a gift card? This is one of the funny things that we do as Christians. It's like, man, I went to Brooklyn in the butcher, but I had a gift card. It was like a $120 meal, but I had a gift card, so it's cool. And it is cool, but it's also cool if you want to spend your actual own money on it. Um, if that is something that would provide you with some rich, you know, the the great wedding feast of the lamb, that, that is uh, the consummation of human history is a grand party with the finest meats and the best wines. And it's okay if once or twice a year you, you do something and you say, if this is how good this is, how good will the wedding feast of the lamb be? We're using our money to provide us with experiences that make God's nearness seem more real and more true and, and prepare us for, for who he is and, and what he's like. You're allowed to ask questions like, will this bring me delight? Will this bring me joy? The assumption, if you're going to ask these kinds of questions, is that you can actually afford it. A litmus test, if you can afford it or not, is what would happen to my life if I set this amount of money on fire? 
If instead of buying this, I set this on fire. If your life crumbles from setting $100 on fire, that means no, you don't do this. The answer to all of those questions, will this give me more of the presence of God? Will this root me in his promises? If that means you can't pay your, your rent or your utility or your bills, the answer to that question is no. It will not give you those things. The first place to start is getting your own financial house in order. A survey came out in the last year or so. Uh, it's, it said the majority of Americans couldn't afford an unexpected bill of $500 or more. What that means, if something came up that cost $500 or more, you would have to borrow money to pay for it or not do it, which means the majority of us are living on absolute razor-thin margins financially. And that also means that the majority of us are living in utter financial chaos. And, and nobody really experiences the presence of God when our life is filled with chaos, when we're drowning in debt and bills, and the fear. I mean, money is one of the primary causes of divorce in our country. So one of the fundamental ways you can use your wealth to enjoy God's presence is by bringing peace into your financial world, by bringing order into the chaos of your financial world. And the Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about love, or heaven, or hell, or salvation. Money is a big deal in the Bible, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. If, if you're one of these people who's you're like, this is me. I have no idea what I'm doing with my money. I could not afford a $500 bill. My life is chaotic. Next week, after the 11 o'clock service, we have a free budgeting seminar. We'll buy you pizza. So that's one less thing you can take off of your budget for this week is lunch next Sunday. A financial planner from our church is leading this class. There is no shame in this. There is no shame in asking for help and wanting God's wisdom in how to live a more godly life. So don't be embarrassed. The, the only way out of a hard situation is by facing it and dealing with it. And we want to provide you tools. If you have no savings, if you have no budget, if you have no idea what you're doing, there's a good chance you're really anxious. You're really afraid. And so this is where you start. Lay your foundations. Understand how to give, save, and spend. And once you've become faithful with the little things, you can start using your wealth to create experiences that remind you of God's love for you. So broadly speaking, how do we use our money wisely? Use it for experiences of the presence of God. And then that moves out to the... Don't think of these less as sequential order as much as we're, these are all kind of happening at once. So the other wise thing we can do with money is we can use our money to bless our community. And I'll tell you, if there's chaos, this is my last pitch for the financial seminar next week, the budget seminar. If there is chaos in your world financially, you are doubtfully living as a blessing to your community, whether that's your brothers and sisters in this church or Southern Indiana as a whole. The, the scriptures teach that the first thing we do with our stuff is we give some of it away. That's why with our kids, we say the first thing you do with your money is you give some of it away. That's line item number one in your household budget. When you get to that thing next week, if you have no budget, line item number one is you give some of it away. Again, think about the gardener. The gardener sows before he reaps, right? He invests into the soil before he takes something from the plants that come out of it. So it is with us. We see the, God, uh, the gifts that God has given to us as gifts he's given to us. Do you see what I mean by that? The, or the old cliche, we're blessed to be a blessing. It's funny how nobody knows that phrase anymore. Let's bring it back. Uh, blessed to be a blessing. That means God blesses us in part to bless others. God's grace comes to us to move 
through us. So the Christian makes generosity a way of life. Not just like these one-time moments or like on the first of the month, I slip a couple of bucks into the church box on the way out. It's like one of our core virtues as Christians is generosity. We live open hands. We have open hands and, and open wallets. Uh, we plan and anticipate generosity. It's, it's, just, it's just what we do. And let me give you a controversial example of this. Um, so Grandpa Joe Biden is about to give some of you people with kids extra money this month. You know that? You know, nobody, nobody, one, anybody? Okay, I'll explain to you guys what's happening. Um, so this doesn't really work for me because of how my status with the government, and I do this for a living. Professional Christians are treated differently. Uh, so some of you, you get money off of your taxes at the end of the year based on how many kids you have and their ages. Well, Grandpa Joe is going to start giving you a monthly installment of that instead of you do it at the end of the year which means starting this month, some of you guys are going to start getting extra money showing up in, in your bank account. Now, the foolish thing to do about this would be for us to argue about whether or not that is sound fiscal policy for the United States government. Why would that be foolish at this point? Um, well, one, unless you've got really good friends and you're able to have these conversations, it'll likely just make you dislike your brothers and sisters in Christ even more. And so, you know, do with that what you will. Probably shouldn't talk about it on Facebook. Uh, it'll just bring division. The other reason it's kind of foolish to debate about it now is because the money is coming. <laughs> you know what I'm, you get what I'm saying? It's happening. It's coming. And you, I guess out of principle, you can not cash the check or you can write that check back to the U.S. Treasury when it shows up. Exactly. There's a lady over here. She went, oh, like, Abraham and Isaac situation. Uh -huh. The money is coming. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? So some of you, you need to use that to pay for daycare. You need to use that to pay for childcare. Maybe you can start getting more nutritious food for your children. Some of you who really need that money need to use that to take care of your little ones. Some of you who don't need that money you should start planning on how you're going to give some of that away. I'm not saying give it all away. I'm not saying you can't go use some of that and have a nice dinner or wherever. What would happen if we looked at some of that money as an opportunity to bless our church family? And maybe that means you give more to the church, maybe. Um, but I'm I mean, like, what would happen if we put an extra 20 in our pocket? If Grandpa Joe is going to give you 10 extra $20 bills a month or how, however much money he's giving you and your family, if you say, I'm going to take 120 a week and put it in my pocket with the goal of giving this away. And I'm going to pray in the morning, Lord, what would you have me do with this 20? And maybe you give a, a huge tip to your favorite barista or you pay for somebody's gas at, at the gas pump. But I guarantee you, if you say, Lord, help me to give some of this away, Give me an attention to your spirit. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be walking down Main Street in New Albany or wherever you walk, and the Lord will say, you see that lady over there? You should give her $20. And you'll be like, Lord, that feels crazy. And he'll be like, just give her the $20. And then you're going to walk up, and you say, hey, lady, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm supposed to give you this $20 bill. And you give her the 20 and she's going to start crying. And she's going to say, I prayed that God would give me $20 this morning because I need to do this thing. And thanks be." And then you're going to have a little worship service there. Something beautiful and, and wonderful will happen. Well, what might happen if our church had a reputation for being generous? If our neighborhood, if our city knew the people, the Christians at this church as people of open hands and open wallets? 
So all that we have comes from God. All is a gift from God, and we will use our money to bless our community. I want our neighbors and our city to see us as a blessing to this community. Because we aren't just meeting needs or buying gifts for people, though that's part of it. This gets to the third thing that we can do wise financially for money. We provide other people with experiences of the presence of God. That, that is what is happening when we're using our money in generous ways. When we plan our generosity, we're putting ourselves in a position to be used by God. You'll begin looking for opportunities and listening to the Spirit, nudging and leading, and then it will happen. And you will get to tangibly show somebody what God is like. He sees them, he cares for them, and he will provide for them. You know, if, if Christians are only known for what we're against and what we're angry about, and where we stand on these issues, people will not believe us when we tell them that God loves them. Because all they've experienced from God's people is anger and division and hatred. What would happen? I mean, there's just a couple hundred adults in this church. What would happen if a couple hundred adults said, we are going to start planning and prioritizing our generosity? You know what will happen to us when we do this? we'll see that we need far less money than we think we do. We'll realize that Jesus is right. It is better. It is more human to give. We'll grow in our confidence that God loves us and cares for us and provides for us. This is the wonderful thing of Christian generosity. When we help others experience the presence of God, we will experience the presence of God too. So do you want to feel safe? Do you want to feel in control? Do you want to feel satisfaction in your soul? I'm pleading with you to believe money will not work. Money for the soul is like milk for thirst. You can listen to the Lord now and follow, or you can learn that lesson the hard way and chase the wind for another 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Money was not created to satisfy you. Money exists to help you experience the nearness of God and bless your community. So we open our hands and give. That is one of the core practices of the Christian life, simple generosity. And we do this because we want to be human again and because God gave first. So every week we root ourselves in the generosity of God. God gave first when he created. God gave first when he issued promises. God gave first when he rescued us out of slavery in Egypt. God gave first when he sent prophets and wooed us over and over. And ultimately, we see his generosity when he gave us his son. And as the scriptures tell us, if God would not spare his own son, how richly would he give us all things? And so we call our minds to the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread blessed it, thanked God for it, and broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have to see the generosity of God. He gave you his only son because he loves you. And he desires you to come and experience peace in his kingdom. And so before you give any money, before you do anything, receive the gift of God. Um, if you haven't done that, we ask that you refrain from eating this meal. This is a sacred meal that symbolizes our union with Christ. And so it's meant for Christians. Um, but if you have placed your faith in Christ, I invite you to take your cup 
and to open it. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.